This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the philosopher Michael J. Sandel about his new book, Tyranny of Merit, What's Become of the Common Good? It's a timely and necessary book, Michael, one that addresses the causes of the cultural and political antagonisms currently driving American society toward the maelstrom of civil war. Your book accounts for the four-year tempest of the Trump administration and speaks to the problems standing in the way of President Biden's hope for a nation not so bitterly divided against itself. Perhaps you can begin by telling us what you mean by the term meritocracy. How and when do we come by the notion that an expensive education is proof of superior talent and character, that being poor is the mark of moral and intellectual disgrace? Two conspicuously stupid notions. Under what rock did we dig them up? (laughs) Well, thank you. Lewis, for that provocative opening question and for that very rounded, strong summary of my book, The Tyranny of Merit, Meritocracy. Meritocracy is the idea that if chances, if everyone has an equal chance, then those who land on top deserve it. The winners deserve the rewards that flow from the exercise of their merits, of their efforts and talent. And on the face of it, this is an inspiring idea. It's inspiring insofar as it commits us to removing barriers to achievement so that everyone, regardless of their background, has a chance to rise. And that idea is a good thing. Removing barriers is a good thing. The problem is, with the attitudes towards success, this way of thinking about winning and losing gives rise to. In recent decades, Lewis, the divide between winners and losers has been deepening, poisoning our politics and driving us apart. And this has, I think, partly to do with the widening inequalities. But it's not only about inequality. It's also, I think, about changing attitudes toward success, toward winning and losing that have come with it. Those who've landed on top over the last few decades have come to believe that their success is their own doing, the measure of their merit, and that those who fall short have no one to blame but themselves. So this is what I mean by the tyranny of merit. It has to do Lewis, with the meritocratic hubris of the successful and the galling sense of humiliation it inflicts on those who haven't flourished in the new economy. How did we get there? I mean, you you say this way of thinking is the product of the last 40-odd years. Yeah, I, I think it's the idea of meritocracy goes back further. Actually, the term was coined in the late 1950s by Michael Young. He was a British sociologist affiliated with the Labour Party. And what's interesting is when he coined the term, he wrote a short book called The The Rise of the Meritocracy. 
He was not holding out meritocracy as an ideal of a just society. He was writing a dystopian short novel. He was drawing attention to the tendency of what he called the meritocratic society of creating this deep divide between winners and losers and the smug assurance, what I call the meritocratic hubris of the winners, that they deserve their place, that they've earned it, that they've done it on their own. And Michael Young predicted that as the meritocracy unfolded, that eventually it would provoke a rebellion, a populist rebellion. He thought it would come in the year 2034. Well, he actually, it, it arrived, but about 18 years ahead of schedule. So the idea of meritocracy as a term, it goes back to Michael Young in 1958, but it has a deeper history. And in the book, I, I offer what I call a short history of, of the idea of merit. In some ways, it goes back to uh, debates in Christian theology about whether salvation is something that we merit, that, that we earn through good works uh, here on earth, or whether salvation is a pure gift of grace of God. And theologians debated this question. Augustine took the very strong position that salvation is a matter of, of grace. So did Luther and Calvin. But as we get into the time of the of the Puritans and the Puritan work ethic, the idea of work in a calling, uh, it was seen as a sign that one had been marked for salvation. But it's, it, it became difficult to believe that hard work and success was a sign of salvation, but not a source of it. And so gradually, the idea migrated from hard work being a sign of salvation to it being a source of salvation. And that led to the notion of self-help, that being saved was the mark of one's superior effort and virtue and good works. And the debates over salvation, is it merit or is it grace, are replicated in striking ways these days in our time when we're debating, of course, not who deserves uh, salvation, but who deserves the earthly rewards uh, that a market economy bestows upon the successful. And why in the past four decades has this accentuated? I think it's because the inequalities have deepened during the age of globalization. And those who have landed on top have gravitated toward the meritocratic ideal as a way of explaining and justifying their success in a way of explaining why those who struggle um, are themselves to blame. It's also closely connected, and perhaps we'll come to this, to the increasing role of of higher education in allocating opportunity, which also is something that we see unfold with increasing intensity, Lewis, over the last four decades or so. Yes, let's begin with that. First, I think we also have to note that the Puritans believed that wealth was a proof of virtue. I mean, they got around to what they called a righteous partnership with mammon. <laughs> the, the, uh, 
And the and the country is not founded America on uh, as a democracy. It's founded as, a, as on the dream of riches. I mean, but that so so yes, the um, it evolved into that. It, 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 it evolved, evolved into that. Into yeah. That. Okay. Right. It didn't start out that way because wealth. Act, the the idea was that if you worked faithfully in a calling, it was for the sake of increasing. The goal was was to increase the glory of God, not to uh, consume or to enjoy that wealth. Certainly not to excess, and so that led to to uh, industry striving and hard work, but not for the sake of spending and enjoying and indulging uh, with that wealth, but instead for the sake of increasing the glory of God. But then gradually the wealth accumulates. And Max Weber tells us a story about how this contributed to the spirit of capitalism, the accumulation work, but with accumulation. But eventually, as you say, uh, having acquired uh, wealth, earthly riches, that came to be seen as a sign of virtue and more than as a sign of virtue, as the source of it, hence the, the element of self-help and self-mastery and self-making that becomes such an important part of, of the American understanding of the self and of success. And we see it now in a seemingly secular setting in debates about who deserves what with regard to income and wealth. Well, let's go to the subject of higher education. I mean, you have a, you know, your opening introduction is about getting in, and then you have a chapter called the sorting machine, which is the function of, of higher education. Talk about that. Talk, talk, talk about the uh, meritocracy being the merit badges being awarded as a credential at Harvard or Yale. What we've done as a society is we've cast higher education in the role of being the arbiter of opportunity in a meritocratic society. Colleges and universities, especially highly competitive selective ones, are the institutions that define the merit and that confer the credentials that a meritocratic society honors and rewards. Now, it doesn't have to be this way. Converting higher education into a sorting machine for a meritocratic society, that's, that actually draws higher education from its intrinsic purposes and ends, which have to do with promoting teaching and learning and scientific discovery, and indeed the love of learning, and for that matter, the cultivation of civic virtues. These are the intrinsic goods that higher education at its best serves. But increasingly in recent decades, this mission, these purposes have been crowded out as higher education has become a kind of sorting machine. And the reason this has happened, I think, is that it's a partly it's a political feature of contemporary debate that the way parties, especially mainstream parties at the center left and the center right, both the way they've dealt 
with the growing inequalities of income and wealth produced by decades of globalization, was not to deal with those inequalities directly as a structural problem in need of reconfiguration, but instead to offer people the opportunity to rise individual upward mobility through higher education. What you earn will depend on what you learn, we were told. You can make it if you try. If you want to compete and win in the global economy, go to college, get a university degree, then you too can compete effectively. This was the message. And how often did we hear this message reiterated, intoned by politicians, Democrats and Republicans alike, that the solution to inequality, the solution to wage stagnation is get a university degree. The problem is um, there's an insult implicit in this promise. Encouraging people to go to, get, to go to college, that's a good thing in and of itself. Broadening access for those who can't afford it is even better. The problem is that when the promise of individual upward mobility through higher education becomes the primary political response to inequality and wage stagnation, it's inadequate. Not only is it inadequate because many people um, are left behind, there's also an insult implicit in that advice, in that offer, in that admonition. And the insult is this, if you didn't go to college, and if you're not flourishing in the new economy, your failure must be your fault. It's on you. So, the, But the politicians who offered this, this response to inequality missed the insult implicit in it. And as a result, a great many people uh, felt excluded and looked down upon by this kind of framing of what opportunity consists in. It's easy, Lewis, for those of, uh, those of us who spend our days in the company of the credential to forget a simple fact. Most Americans don't have a four-year college degree. Nearly two-thirds don't. So it's folly to create an economy that sets as a necessary condition of decent work and, and, and a dignified life, a four-year degree that most people don't have. So this, I think, is how we have, how we have come to cast higher education as the arbiter of opportunity in a meritocratic society, but how it's generated resentment, anger, even humiliation for those who don't have a four-year degree. And it's also, I think, corroded, crowded out the intrinsic purposes that college, colleges and universities should serve in favor of the, the sorting project. That's my worry. Well, I think that's already happened. I mean, you, you suggest that people are not going to college uh, for the education, they're going for the networking in order to get ahead in the world, to, to get a, a, a credential. I mean, you, you, you point that out in your, in your opening introduction so that the, uh, 
education is not what it's about. It, it's not about learning to think for oneself. It's not learning about civic virtue. It's not learning the story of, of America. It's not learning the history of, of, of some of our greatest people, many of whom started out very poor. <laughs> right, right. Well, in the, in the opening to the book, which you, just, uh, which you mentioned, Lewis, um, I use as a parable, almost as a kind of allegory, this scandal, the college admissions scandal of about a year and a half ago, when it turns out that a group of affluent parents, some of them celebrities, some from the financial industry, some attorneys and so on, paid a corrupt uh, college consultant to um, help them bribe their kids' way into admission to selective colleges. And what's interesting about that story, of course, it generated universal condemnation. Everyone was appalled across the, across the political spectrum. But oh, what's really, uh, what's most revealing, I think, about that uh, scandal is something that we don't reflect on enough, which is why has the competition for admission to top colleges and universities become so intense that it generates a scandal on this scale? The FBI had to be deployed to investigate this matter. U.S. attorney brought charges and so on. Why has admission to these schools become an object of such fevered ambition in our society that it gives rise even to this kind of scandal. Never mind to the, uh, to the billion plus dollar industry of legal measures that well-off parents uh, can avail themselves of uh, to equip their children to compete for admission the, the SAT prep tutoring, uh, the enrichment programs, the, the private college counselor business, uh, hauling kids off to do internships and good works in distant places, the better to create a, a, a profile that admissions committees will smile upon. We've actually disfigured, I think, the adolescent years of a large swath of American young people, and it's particularly those in the top, top third of the income scale, who are, who are competing or whose parents want them to compete for admission to these places. And it creates really a, a stress-strewn, pressure-packed, meritocratic gauntlet that young people have to endure uh, as, as teenagers, but in some cases, even before. And the question is, why? Why has it uh, come to be this way? And I think it has to do with the role that we've assigned uh, these selective colleges and universities beyond their educational mission, the role in sorting uh, people for a meritocratic society, Lewis. But we also have a society where we confuse the price of a thing and the worth of a thing. We put the higher value on the price of a thing than we do on the worth of a thing. Yes, I agree. I agree. Here's, here's one example of the moment. Uh, 
we assume, we slide into the assumption that the money people make is the measure of their contribution to the common good, as if those who make the most money, whether hedge fund managers or casino moguls, um, uh, contribute uh, hundreds, even thousands of times more to the common good uh, than do uh, nurses or teachers or physicians. But this is a mistake. It's as if we've outsourced our moral judgment about what counts as a valuable contribution to the common good to markets. And the market verdict is often highly imperfect, to say the least. We see this, to, we see this today, uh, Lewis, with the, uh, in the midst of the pandemic, when those of us who have the luxury of working from home can't help but recognize how deeply we depend on workers we often overlook. I'm thinking not only of those who are working heroically in hospitals to care for COVID patients, but also delivery workers, warehouse, warehouse workers, grocery store clerks, home health care providers, child care workers. These are not the best paid or most honored workers in our society. And yet now we are calling them, rightly, essential workers. And so this could be the uh, could be an opening for a broader public debate about how to bring their pay and recognition into better alignment with the importance of the work they do. In any case, it reveals the gap between, uh, well, what, you, what you've called value and worth, the value assigned by the market, by the labor market, and the actual worth, the, the true value of the contribution people make to the common good. How do we fix that? Because, I mean, you touch on the central point, which, which is that the society without what we now call the essential workers, without the water engineers, without the sanitation people, without doctors, without t teachers, the, the uh, society would collapse. Whereas if, if, you know, we lost four highly paid television talking heads, it wouldn't matter. I mean, I mean, why do we, why do we value for people that are utterly useless? I mean, the, the, and, and not value the people that are, are useful. I mean, how do we, I mean, that mystifies me. And, and the, uh, and the, it's another point you make. I mean, we don't have anybody, our politicians are in, in, in Congress, not, none of them, they, they're all, you know, lawyers or <laughs> consultants of one kind or another. They're professional politicians. They, none of them uh, have in their background that of the working man or woman. Well, it, it, is, it is quite striking how few members of Congress uh, come from working class backgrounds. And I think one of the reasons for this is that very few, only a tiny fraction of members of, of Congress, or for that matter of state legislatures, um, are people who did not get a college, a four-year college degree. And this is true not only in the US, but also 
in most European democracies, the, the, uh, the dominance in representative government of, uh, of the professional classes and the well-educated, college-educated classes now is it, it, it's a greater degree of, of dominance that in, than at any time since the, the years when they're in the 19th century, when there were, were property qualifications for the vote. But from the time universal suffrage was introduced in the 20th century until now, people from working class backgrounds did have a considerable presence in representative government. And as we have come to make a, a four-year college degree uh, an increasingly important condition of not only of economic well-being, but also of social esteem, the more we've done that, the greater uh, has been, and, and of course, the greater the role of money in, in elections, the greater the tendency for people without a four-year degree and, without, and uh, to have any uh, presence. So there is something deeply unrepresentative about this. But you ask what we can do about it, Lewis, and I, uh, my suggestion is, first of all, we need to shift the terms of public discourse, even before we get to detailed policy proposals, I think we need to shift, especially party, the Democratic Party in the US, center left, social democratic parties in Europe, need to shift away from a single minded focus on dealing with inequality by offering individual upward mobility through college education and focus instead on making life better for everyone, regardless of their credentials. We need to shift, in other words, from arming people for meritocratic competition and focus more on making life better for people who may not have a university degree, but who nonetheless make important contributions uh, to the common good through the work they do, through the families they raise and the communities they serve. And that means putting the dignity of work at the center of our politics. Everybody's for the dignity of work, but what we really need, I think, is a robust debate about what it would take to renew the dignity of work, which includes not only the, the economic rewards associated with, with work, but also the social recognition and esteem that a great many working people feel, rightly feel, that they've been denied. Well, not only denied, actively denied. I mean, you have you have Hillary Clinton speaking of half the American people as the deplorables. You you have columnists for the New York Times saying that. They won't have half of America is brain dead and, and that they won't have anything to do with them. They can't talk to them anymore. The, the, <laughs> I mean, you, you have this, this attitude of, of, as you say, uh, contempt from, from our political and governing classes um, for, uh, you know, white trash. I mean, somebody in New York, uh, magazine the other day spoke of all the Trump supporters as essentially white trash. I mean, I mean, what, 
I mean, that's what you're talking about, right? I mean, because what's more, more important than, than I th if I read you correctly, than, than uh, equal pay, it's, it's respect. Yes. Yes. I mean, social it, recognition. It, and social esteem. recognition yeah. and respect. It, it's, it's not, yeah. you know. And how do we get that back? I mean, we have to get people like uh, Hillary Clinton stop talking about the deplorables. I, I, I don't know. How, how do you do that? Because I think you're right. I think that's, that's the thing that has to be done. Right. Uh, well, I think, I think this falls especially to the Democratic Party and to progressives to recognize that by the embrace of market-driven globalization over the past four decades, the Democratic Party ceased to be uh, the party for working people. Instead, by 2016, when Donald Trump was elected, the Democratic Party had become a party more attuned to the professional classes, the well-credentialed uh, classes, than to the working class voters who once constituted its base and reason for being. This is a change politically and also in terms of out and values. Parties that traditionally were parties that that stood up for the the interests of working people and the less privileged against concentrated power and big business became in the meritocratic age parties more attuned to the values and interests and outlooks of the professional well-credentialed classes and as a result they alienated many working people and uh, this opened the way to Trump and it opened the way to authoritarian right-wing populists in other uh, democracies as well. And so I think what the Democratic Party needs to do and what social democratic parties generally need to do is to recast their political mission and purpose in order to speak to the sense of exclusion and humiliation even experienced by many working people. Um, I, th I think an important part of that project is to consider uh, exclusions um, and disadvantages of race and class together rather than apart, rather than as separate problems, and to make common cause to develop a political agenda that speaks effectively to the disempowered and to the excluded, to those looked down upon. Uh, and that means reconsidering the meritocratic hubris of elites. It means understanding it and its galling effect on those who don't have a university education and offering a broader democratic equality of condition as the animating political ideal, rather than simply offering individual upward mobility through college as the solution to the inequality that a market-driven globalization has brought about. What do you think of that, Lewis? Well, I, I think that's true. And I, and I think that I'm old enough to have seen this, this happen. I mean, during the 1980s, with the advent of Reagan, the words public and private 
reverse meaning. I mean, when I grow up, I'm, I'm, I'm born in, the, in, in 1930, so I'm, 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 I'm there uh, during World War II, and I'm there during the, you know, the, the New Deal and, the, and the, the, the notion of a common good and a collective good being self-evident. <laughs> right. Uh, also, but the idea of public, public service, um, public good, public uh, um, park, public school, uh, had the connotation of something good. Right. And private had the connotation of something selfish and, and uh, mm. corrupt. And the, the two words reverse meaning in the 80s. Suddenly the word yeah. public is associated with everything dingy and, and public housing, public toilet, public. You, you see what I mean? I mean, yes, and, and, yes. and private becomes the great, you know, the, the true and the beautiful. Private school, private health, private, club. Private health club, private trainer. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah, and that, and that, that, that yeah, and, 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 you know, Ivy League College. I would just conclude with this observation. I think your point about the shifting, uh, really the loss of the sense of the public realm, yeah. I think is really right, gets right to the heart of this. Because what connects the erosion of public places and common spaces of shared democratic citizenship what connects that problem with what I call the tyranny of merit in the book is that the, the idea of meritocracy that has taken hold in recent decades presupposes that my success is my own doing. It presupposes a, uh, the idea that we are are self-made, self-sufficient human beings. And this way of thinking, this attitude toward success, apart from being harsh and punitive toward those who don't flourish by claiming it's, it's their fault, their doing, their struggles, it also makes it very hard for us to see ourselves in other people's shoes. Appreciating, on the other hand, the role of luck in life, the luck and good fortune that helped me on my way, appreciating a sense of indebtedness uh, for one's success to family and teachers, to neighborhood, community, country, to the times in which we live, appreciating luck, good fortune, and a sense of indebtedness can open us to a kind of solidarity that invites us to ask, what do we owe one another as fellow citizens? So in the end, my argument is that the tyranny of merit consists in its corrosive effect on, on the politics of the common good, on our ability to see ourselves as sharing a common life. So part of the response, part of the, part of the repair is a civic repair, rebuilding the civic infrastructure of a shared common life, the public places and spaces that enable citizens from different walks of life to encounter one another, to bump up against one another in the course of their everyday lives. Because this is how we, this is how we learn to negotiate and to abide our differences. Uh, 
And this is how we come to care for the common good. So in the end, overcoming the tyranny of merit is really a project of reviving Lewis, the, the appreciation of the public realm that you remember and that you've described very powerfully here. And it involves shifting from a politics of individual upward mobility as the only route to opportunity to a broader, more generous, and I would hope less rancorous politics of the common good. Yes, I mean, and all of this is contained in in Thomas Paine's common sense. I mean, you know, he his imagination, imagining of a, a constitution and included places for working class people and a, a real coming together of, of, of difference in, in, in a single project. Listen, this is a wonderful book and, and the, uh, I hope it gets widely read and taken to heart and acted upon. And the, um, it is, you point to the problem that is facing Biden, which he indicated in his inaugural speech, but it's going to be hard to do. Yes. Yes. So, um, well, that, that Lewis was, I mean, I, I wrote the book actually shortly before Biden was elected, but, but that's the goal to shift the terms of public discourse toward, uh, toward a, a more generous kind of politics of the common good. And whether, whether we can do that, whether Biden can help point us in that direction, uh, I suppose remains to be seen. But that's, that's the hope. Thank you very much, Michael J. Sandell, for speaking with us today about your new book, Tyranny of Merit, What's Become of the Common Good? Thank you, Lewis. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.